0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. And the Oscar goes to... Forrest Whitaker in The Last King of Scotland*. At the time, I was trying to understand things. I think one of the things I was trying to understand was actually uh, conflict and violence.
1: How much have the characters you've played as an actor impacted what you believe in?
0: I am the father. This nation, Nicholas, and you have most grossly offended your father. The prince will now have the strength of the Black Panther stripped away. Forgive me for saying this, Mr. Fellows. I certainly wouldn't want to be hired under circumstances that would make you feel uncomfortable.
1: Who's still with you? Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasse. This is the show where we discover the sparks that unexpectedly ignite people's passion to change the world. My guest today is one of the most compelling actors of his generation. From the last king of Scotland, the butler, Black Panther, godfather of Harlem and respect. I'm naming just a bite-sized fraction of his work here the quiet brilliance of Forrest Whitaker has shone through and stirred our emotions time and time again. His singular intensity has brought to life a kaleidoscope of characters and earned him critical acclaim and countless awards. But for a long time now, far from the view of the film cameras, Forrest Whitaker has been committed to playing a different kind of role, a uniquely critical one, as a facilitator for peace and the empowerment of young people living in conflict zones. As the founder of WPDI, the Whitaker Peace and Development Initiative, he's helped to transform the lives of thousands of youths across the globe, from right here in the US to Mexico, Uganda, South Sudan, and South Africa. Forrest Whitaker is part of that relatively small group of celebrities who've gone from using their voice and visibility in an effort to bring about change. To establishing a not-for-profit organization. He succeeded at building an enduring and profoundly impactful operation and quite frankly I am in awe. In my journey as a not-for-profit founder I found myself struggling with a myriad of questions and challenges including how to expand our operations, increase funding and measure impact. The first time I spoke to Forrest about his activism was actually a couple of years ago. It was on stage during a live event in Sweden, but we only had a short amount of time for that conversation. So having him all to myself on The Accidental Activist was finally my chance to get to the heart of the matter and figure out why on earth he decided that occasionally speaking out wasn't enough for him and instead he wanted to take his activism to the next level. Quite simply, I wanted to understand his motivation, and I figured that the only way to do that was to try to discover the real Forrest Whitaker. I hope you enjoy the show. Forrest Whitaker, welcome to The Accidental Activist. Ah,
0: It's great to be here with you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you for joining us. As I prepared for this conversation with you, I was very struck by some comments that I came across, comments you made in the past about life in one's 40s. As I'm a woman in her 40s, uh, I was very struck by you saying that being in your 40s is the best time of life. And I was just wondering why that is. What What was revealed to you at that time in life?
0: I mean, I think in youth, you know, and when you're leaving school or when you're in your later tw- middle 20s you're trying to discover where you want to go and uh, at some point during the time of the 25 to 30 I mean obviously these are arbitrary numbers but 25 to 30 uh, you start to get clarity on the direction that you want to take usually it starts to um, coalesce in your life and then then you move on to the next phase which is building your life and having your, your home if you can or relationships that you can that are serious and I think at a certain point, that's become stable and you've stabilized yourself in your career and your work and your relationships and even in your home space. And now at this point in your 40s, you're able to release all those things as things that are happening and to try to pursue your dreams. I've never broken it down like that. I guess I just always just thought that when I was in that age bracket that it was a really productive time for me.
1: I think for me at this stage in life, I'm 45 and and very open with my age, despite some of the social pressures around that. I think for me in my 40s, I really clicked into a sense of my own ability to affect change Mm. and confidence in my own voice. Mm. I don't know whether you tapped into a similar space in your 40s. Yeah,
0: I did. I think uh, it was during that time that I really understood what's the focus of what I wanted in And really pursued like trying to give back to my philosophy about life and philanthropy or my life about uh, empathy became more alive during that period of time.
1: You shared that your mom taught you a core lesson that you don't have to believe what I believe, but you have to believe in something. Mm -hmm. I was really struck by those words. How old were you when you first heard them?
0: I was probably like eight years old. I was a little kid. We used to go to, to church every Sunday. I come from a family on my father's side of preachers and my mother's uh, teachers and my mother's side. Her father was also a preacher. And so, you know, faith had been always part of my life, but I also started to question my place in the universe. And if this was the only way to worship God or if this was the only way to expand myself to the spiritual in a way. And so. That question really meant a lot. I think her answer was most important, which when I asked her, you know, why do I have to believe what you believe? And she was like, you don't, you just have to believe in something. And I've carried that lesson with me throughout my life. And it's affected many choices that I've made.
1: Give me an example of a choice that it's impacted.
0: Well, there's many different ones. I guess there's personal ones. And there's there's also some of the work that I've been doing with WPDI. We went into the South Sudan to begin our program for the first time. We were there in like 2013. And we trained a bunch of youths from Jong State. And they were from all different tribes. They were combative towards each other and stuff. But we brought them into Juba. And we worked with them for a long period of time. And then they became a team, a black team. And we had chosen Jong State because we were thinking that that's where the conflict might arise. And if we could like temper it by helping some of the youths organize themselves, maybe it wouldn't arrive, but it did arrive. So when those youths went back to Zhongli, they had to like try to survive, get themselves to safety. And and the things that we've taught them on computers and phones, they were able to move each other to safety, you know, across tribes, which is a very powerful thing. But at, at the end of that, there was this question, and that was, do we stay during this war or do we go, you know? A lot of the uh, NGAs was leave, were were leaving at the time, and even some of the peacemakers from the UN. And, and at that moment, I decided that I wanted to stick with what I wanted to do in the first place, which was to, was to work with these youths these in this country and try to allow them to have the power to su- succeed. And so we stayed, and we reorganized ourselves, and um, we went into the, PC, the PLC camps, the protection of the civilian camps, we started some very Active programs with almost 5,000 years inside of those places. And it was that decision. It was a decision of what you believe in and if you're willing to live by that. And we did. And now we've, we've been there for 10 years. Uh, we're still there. We have like four centers there and uh, a lot of employees and a lot of youths, thousands of youths have taken our program and something that we've started their businesses. So it was the right choice. I think uh, it helped to shape our organization. Actually, I think that the difficulties and stuff that happened during those periods of time helped us to become stronger, more organized because we had to solve problems, whether it be getting individuals out of the country so they wouldn't be killed or whatever it might be. And so we learned a great deal during that time and were effective also because we were willing to listen and care about those people around us.
1: I'm looking forward to digging into... All that went into building WPDI, the Whitaker Peace and Development Initiative, which you founded in 2012. Before we get there, I want to take our listeners on a little bit of a journey to understand your motivations and, and your shapings, which is why I asked about your mother, mm-hmm. because I know that she's a cornerstone figure and, and source of motivation for this work that you're doing in conflict zones and, and violence afflicted communities. Um, to talk about the other big piece of your life, the acting. And being an actor, how much have the characters you've played as an actor impacted what you believe in?
0: Uh, greatly. I think it, I have to go to the core of it, to the reason that I originally started to do it. I, I was originally studying music, uh, conservatory, classical voice, and um, I decided that the stories that I would tell wouldn't allow me to reach the communities that I come from and to talk to talk to them and to help elevate and so I, I, I started to act, but I started to act on this idea that we're all connected. And so for me, every time I was going into a character, I was taking away layers of their life, You know, this this pain that they suffered with at the hands of this work, this love that they had in high school, this moment that their boss, you're just pulling away the layers until you're away all the layers of their lives and the scenes in their life. And there at the bottom of it was a light that we all share. And um, then what would happen with those characters was then I would put those layers back on, whether it be children that they would had or jobs that they had lost, and all these, put them back on all these layers. And because they'd been taken off, there'd be cracks. And the cracks in those layers would be the light that was coming up from the bottom, from who they were, the core source of what they were. That connected them to humanity, and that's why you would be able to see the light in anyone, no matter who you're playing and It allows you to have the empathy to be able to explore uh, these different people, so you can continue to explore yourself, because it's that light that's connected to me, and in that way, I was trying to understand my connection to the universe, to to where we are right now on this planet. Sometimes, uh, if you don't pay enough attention, you don't clean yourself enough, cleanse yourself enough of of the past action, you know, of, of playing this character, so you're taking on a lot of emotions, and quite often. Um, different pains, physical problems, whatever. You're combining all these things to play this character, to surrender to this character. And um, and so that at times can leave some residual pieces.
1: Who's still with you?
0: Uh, Every one of them is with me in some way. I don't always know when they'll show themselves. It depends, you know. um, There's like maybe four characters that like, I would say... Taught me a great deal. I mean, I've been taught in every character, but I think uh, when Clint Eastwood cast me as Bird, uh, it was um, Charlie Parker. It was uh, first time somebody had entrusted me with that to play a leading character in a really difficult role, and um, I had to learn how to to walk through my fear to be able to, as I think, dance on a limb and recognize that even if the limb breaks, that I'm going to be okay when I fall. You know, but I got to dance and that taught me a great lesson. I think um, I had a great lesson from Ghost Dog because he taught me a great deal about silence, about uh, vibration, about how you can vibrate enough to change your your energy flow so you can can see it. That was really interesting. And I went through a lot of meditation for that. And I guess that helped prepare me to get ready to do Last King. And everything that you which was more of where you're completely taken over by the by the character, uh, by the being, and changing your vibration enough so that you would be able to just see that person, just see, see that character. Uh, transmutation. It is a little different than a transforming. Transmutation. And then I guess, lastly, I think I learned a great deal from The Butler because while I was working on that film and I delved deep into the research and understanding of that film I also like got a feeling of transidence when I was working sometimes and that was a really unique feeling I would sometimes be sitting in a room and it just felt like I was almost sitting in a sea of blue you know just just everything was just moving in, in its space and time in the right way and, and um, and, you know and I think I should say because it's not serious but I did a movie called Jingle Jangle like recently, and um, I think Jingle Jangle was quite in a way important for me because uh, it allowed me to start um, finding joy in my work again and finding. Looking had for you joy. lost that? Yeah, I, I had. I had lost that, and I was trying to activate it in myself. I was trying to activate it in old ways, like uh, like by putting myself in a position of fear where fear would be in my friends, and since that it would be a motivator for me to do, to work harder and harder to discover more and more. And it was always important for me to have that fear because I knew then I was walking into some form of, of a new territory, a new, um, a new space. And then you trust yourself that even though you don't know whether there's a floor in, in this new room, in this darkened room, that like they say, uh, the poets say that you still know that you have the wings to fly. And so I keep trying to, I was always trying to do that. But I think I missed a piece, and that was the piece that I kind of found a little bit in Jingle Jangle and revitalized me a little bit, which was the joy and the imagination. And and so it's that particle that was expanded again when I did uh, Jingle Jangle.
1: As you talk to me about the transmutation and the journeys that you go on, I can't help but go back to what your mother said. You have to believe in something, something that must, something that should ground you, that you stay true to. Have you ever had the concern that as you take these journeys with these characters, that you may not come back to Forrest Whitaker?
0: Uh, yeah, I've had that concern at times. I mean, <laughs> but I, I, I think it, it happened to me the most in a film that most people never saw it called um, My Own Love Song, which was me and Renee Zellweger. I played a schizophrenic. That was difficult for me. Uh, probably the most difficult character to rid myself of and uh, come back to normalcy. It took me. I felt like it took a year before I was really feeling like I was back to myself. And I always think to myself, "Am I really completely back to myself?"
1: Are there any red lines, characters you wouldn't play, knowing that there are portals that you could open in doing this work?
0: Uh, I wouldn't play. Uh, Another um, character that was schizophrenic probably. I wouldn't do that.
1: As a young person, do you remember how you viewed your capacity to affect change? As we dig now into the work you do with young people, did you believe, as as a young person, that you had the ability to be a change maker?
0: I guess it was something I thought I was supposed to do. I don't know if I, I wouldn't have thought of it as a change maker or anything like that. Just that there was some destiny I was supposed to follow. At the time, I was trying to understand things. I think one of the things I was trying to understand was actually uh, conflict and violence.
1: Why? Why was that of interest?
0: Well, because I had uh, experienced uh, moments that were were confusing to me. Like uh, There used to be the the Black Panther Party on my corner, and uh, I used to see them every day. And they would uh, kind of pick me up and joke and toss me in the air, tell me to go to the breakfast program. And then one day I went there and they weren't there and I and, uh, looked and I saw a building and it was all shot up and everything and burned out and, and uh, I never saw those men again and uh, I didn't understand. And, and then um, I guess my cousin went off to Vietnam and he was really close to me. We used to... I used to get them to draw. I used to have in this magazine, like this character was a, was a deer called Winky. And you could draw Winky and send in the, the application. Maybe you could be in their art school. So it seemed like something I could do. And my my, my cousin used to help me with it. And I would go to school and I'd be like, oh my gosh, you know. And I, so I got to like paint things around the school and stuff, even though my efforts were collaborative. And, uh, and when he came back from Vietnam, um he was just a uh, kind of broken, broken man, you know. He never has had a job really since then. He's an alcoholic. I never could understand it. I tried to understand it, but he wouldn't explain it to me. And then there's like the birth birth of the of the gangs in my community. And you know there's one the one of the things that I still have the image of today. And I was like a little kid and I was walking down the street, 49th Street, and this guy was walking towards me. He's like teenager maybe about 16 and i was walking down the street and he just hauled off and hit me and just knocked me out like to the ground just
1: uh, no i mean Uh, nothing would deserve uh, that but you didn't know him never crossed paths no provocation no no interaction just sucker punched you yeah
0: and then kept walking and i just laid there looking up at the sky thinking you know what i do you know and Later, I would come to some understandings of these things, you know, I guess I left my junior high school because um, the gangs were sort of after me and my mom moved me to a school across town.
1: No, hang on. You don't just say the gangs were sort of after you and just drop that. What happened?
0: They threw something at me and I like, I got too very vocal about it afterwards. And so then it became an issue of like what they were going to do and stuff and they were going to kill me, I guess. And beat me or whatever, but my mom sent me across town to a whole other world, and it was so different for me. And then I went to a high school that was like on the beach. I took two hours to get there on a bus. So, she, those were moments of of different moments of violence and misunderstanding that that I think prompted me to try to to try to understand it. And I even try to understand it in my work. I would I did like maybe four movies on Vietnam. You know, I produced. Uh, One, I acted in three others. So I was always trying to understand this thing.
1: Clearly, Forrest brings the same focus and inquisitive mind that has shaped his acting career to his work as an activist. And underpinning it all are these words by his mother. You don't have to believe in what I believe in, but you have to believe in something. So, let me ask you, what do you believe in? I've said it before on this show, as an activist, you've got to know the answer to that question. Because in your darkest moments, which will inevitably come, trust me, those times when you feel lost and unsure of what your next move should be, you will stand a far better chance of staying the course and not giving up if you've identified this underlying truth. Let it be your North Star. When we come back, acting and activism collide. You'll hear how one of the most iconic roles Forrest has ever played unexpectedly changed the course of his life. The Accidental Activist is exclusively sponsored by our friends at Mercedes-Benz. At its core, this series is about unexpected discoveries the surprising elements that propel oneself to become an agent of change. And for Mercedes-Benz, well, their story is rooted in championing the unexpected. Take for instance the legendary female race car driver Evie Rosquist. In the 1950s, while women were supposed to stay in their lanes, she became one of Europe's best drivers, period, and eventually drove for the Mercedes-Benz team. When no one expected her to finish the 1962 Argentine Grand Prix, one of the world's most grueling races, she got behind the wheel and blew away the competition and the critics. She finished an astonishing three hours before the second place car, shattering gender stereotypes and setting a new race record no man thought possible. Evie's passion for racing proved to be her greatest weapon in her fight for gender equality. Today, Mercedes-Benz continues to champion women's empowerment and celebrate those like Evie who are driving forces of change.
0: Hey, friend, I'm Nadia Okamoto, host of the Tigris podcast, and I'm so excited for you to join me on this journey of this unfiltered, unapologetic diary of basically being a work in progress. There's kind of this 2022 resolution that I'm creating for myself of really exploring my own body and exploring what I like because I don't think I've ever allowed myself the opportunity to explore. You can find Tigris on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are streamed.
1: Welcome back to The Accidental Activist and the second half of my conversation with Forrest Whitaker. We're going deep here and getting the inside track on his activism and how his efforts have shifted and expanded over the years. And if you're wondering whether he's just a celebrity figurehead for WPDI, well, keep on listening and all will be revealed. Also in this part of the show, we get into grips with the question, what's age got to do with it? Mm-hmm. The time has come to do some myth-busting as it relates to young people and their ability and willingness to do the hard work of changing what's happening around them. But before we get to all of that, let's start with Forrest's accidental moment. I've got to ask you about the forming of the organization of WPDI. Sure. Because I know that it was... In the aftermath of filming The Last King, as reported, you went to an orphanage in northern Uganda and something happened there and something transformative for you happened. Can you talk to, to me about that? What took place, I guess, externally and internally?
0: There was a guy who was, who, his name guy named Sam O'Kello who was working with me as an actor. He um, was, was in Last King and he talked to me about stuff and then he asked me, if I would be willing to go out to the North, to this orphanage that he was trying to form. I finished and I told him, i sure, will I'll go with you out there. So um, I went out and there I met, I guess the first child soldiers that I had ever met. And I could see something in their eyes that I had seen in like the kids that had become gang members back in my community and stuff. There was something that was linking them to me, you know. And so then I decided to start to try to support it and help. And so it started off kind of small, working on the building the dormitory. And my daughters gave up their computers for the computer lab, you know. And, and then I would step with the drilling. and the. Dead. So I was within relationships with them, even to this day. And I decided that I wanted to do some work. And I was asked by the UN if I would come in talk about my experiences in the field uh, with some of the child soldiers and the problem there. And so I did. And, um, they asked me if I would be willing to be at that time an ambassador for that peace reconciliation. And I started working with them too, but it was, um, wasn't enough on the ground for me, you know, to know, cause I was dealing with these kids. i had seen kids that come in and they couldn't even stay alone in a room, you know, and, so I decided that I was going to try, to try to form an organization that would be able to help in some way. And so uh, I had this premise that it should be built on like four tenets, which was conflict resolution training, so they would be able to deal with the conflicts and things in life and ICT or computer technology, so they would be able to amplify their voices and understand the world and see it and life skills, which was dealing with trauma and the issues that they were dealing with, with that and then uh, business skills. And we, I formed I started to meet with people and stuff. And uh, I put together a team uh, with the uh, Ada Carolyn, who's Carolyn Descobrisse also, who, was, who I talked to about this and went with us there with uh, some people from Ericsson and different things. And we started to train these youths. And we were training them and um, the methodology was working. And we decided to go from there because it was connected to South Sudan, and there was some youths that I had met that were coming in from South Sudan and the UN and asked me if we would be willing to move south into South Sudan, and so we did. That was the formation of of it. The formation started, I guess, in my heart because I was we would be training like girls who had been held by the army and been raped and were forced to have children by people like, and um, as well as the young soldiers, and so as you get to hear their stories and talk to them and watch their triumphs, you start to want to do more. And, and so I decided to do that. And I became very intense in the in, in program, in the expansive program right now. And that's when they switched me to uh, Special Envoy for Peace and Reconciliation because of the work that I was doing on the ground, which at this point is like, is dealt with probably a million, 000, 000 people directly. So
1: Wow. How much are those memories from the past that you described having to go across town because of, you know, threats from a gang and, you know, the inexplicable wanton violence of being sucker punched as you walk down the street? How much were those present in your mind as you embarked on this journey of working with young people in conflict zones and violence-ridden communities?
0: It was um, important. To be able to understand, like, you have a community, even with drug dealers and stuff of that, different things of that nature, uh, there's reasons why they make the choices that they make, you know, and um, with violence and things of that nature. So dealing with people who, unfortunately, like at that time, um, at that time I was with the LRA and Joseph Kony.
1: The alleged war crimes of Joseph Kony, the rebel leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, or LRA, in Uganda. He's accused of kidnapping as many as 30,000 children in the past 26 years.
0: And uh, some of these kids had had to kill their own family members, so many different raids, so they had a lot of pain, but also there needed to be some form of forgiveness, too, because uh, they're, they're stigmatized, of course, after having done those things. And um, I just, I just feel like, you know, if I didn't understand at least, or been trying to understand conflict and I didn't, hadn't seen it in different ways, I don't know if my, if I would be as understanding, you know, of the circumstances of sometimes people that you are helping also are not helping or trying to partner with really, are not always like in a good state. They're not necessarily nice or kind or trying to survive.
1: I do have to ask, I mean, I, I was recently asked to become a Goodwill ambassador and I, I'm with UNFPA and um, work with them um, specifically focusing on um, gender-based violence and harmful practices to girls. To me, it comes with this enormous sense of responsibility and a sense that I, I should always be doing more. And it's a, it's a burden that I, I gratefully accept and I'm humbled to have been asked, but I wonder whether you feel, whether it's always on your mind. I find it's always on my mind, this sense whenever I see something happening in the world that, you know, I should be doing more. I should be using my voice more. I wonder how you regulate that.
0: I mean, I think that it's okay that it's on your mind all the time. I guess how you process it. I think I have to uh, be on my mind because I'm dealing with like the, the main office every day. I've dealt with them like three times today already. So it stays on my mind and, and also like the EU's themselves trying to figure out uh, how to make a program more effective, reach more people.
1: And how hard is it? I have a not-for-profit that works with girls. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And <laughs> and I, I have to ask you, because I think, you know, one of the things I wanted to get out of this conversation is the actual giving people a window into the work and, and not being an occasional force for change or, or using your but building an organization. First of all, how engaged or how involved are you? Because some people will say, yes, he built it, but there are lots of celebrities who build organizations and then they step away and they become figureheads. But you just mentioned you've been involved with the head office three times today. How involved are you in the day-to-day of WPDI?
0: And I do it every, every day. Even if I'm working, working on my projects. And, it, and, it, and so on different levels. I mean, um, it could be like proving. Um, the way they put together a certain campaign or discussing like recently a month or so ago, I went into, to uh, France. And I got a chance to meet with uh, our, sort of the French equivalent of, or the European equivalent of USAID. And that was a really good meeting. And so we have meetings where we have to talk about the programs, raise funds for the programs, push, you know, like right now we're expanding um, a trauma program that we have in that we work with trying to insert because we have different types of programs. So this one in particular is actually a domestic program where we're Inserting um, conflict resolution and education into all the core curriculum of the school and a whole school approach, and then we just you now starting. We just hired a, someone from trauma to be able to also integrate trauma into some to the program which we've been developing. We we developed it in, in Uganda. Our trauma program there has probably seen about ten thousand or so people. They've like trained about two hundred twenty one to go out to the communities. So I have to look at those things and talk about those things.
1: How did you? arrive at the realization that young people should be at the center of the efforts to build peace and should be at the forefront because that's contrary to a lot of Western thinking often the the kind of natural social hierarchies that most societies have, which is that, you know, the elders, the adults know best. But you flipped it in, in your organization. And as you said, the methodology is working.
0: I think it's important uh, because obviously they have their feet in the present, but they also have a foot in the future. And as a result, they're able to mediate in a way like the old traditional tribal ways and and also be able to try to bring into that that equation new possibilities that will help the community and help everyone at large. I think they come with innovative ideas. I mean, we're not ignoring the... um,
1: The elders. Yeah,
0: I mean, when we start a program... Our staff will go in and they'll meet the local stakeholders, all the local stakeholders, uh, identify with the stakeholders or the people in the community, the issues that matter to them. Then we'll actually mobilize their expertise. We'll use their networks to enroll like uh, our youth in our program. They'll help us be able to find the youths. And then local partners will mobilize with us and we're able to incubate things to make them grow. I mean, they go through a process. We go in, we, we've done this process. We create somewhat of a board of individuals uh, from the community who work with us and help advise us in, as we move forward. Then those youths will go back, when they get trained up, they've been trained for a year or so, they go back into their communities and start to train the youths there. And at the same time, they make another sort of board of individuals in that area that uh, will work and advise and help them. So they're, still, they're a big part of the equation. It's just the users have been active. We're talking about youths that literally will ha- have Gone into like where they've made a militarized school where the army is in the school and they've gone in and negotiated to get them to leave, you know? So they're youths that are really established. What we're trying to do is just empower them, give them the tools so that they can choose to do the work because they will choose to do uh, different types of work. I guess it, it happens on two levels because it happens on our youths who are really well trained um, leaders. And then it also happens where, where the base that we set up from the beginning, which is a CLC or community learning center, where the community itself has access to come in and learn for free computers, um, business education courses, entrepreneurship courses, uh, literacy courses, sexual health courses. So these, these center hubs uh, operate for those youths to be able to utilize in the field. And then they also like allow the community to participate in improving the parts of their communities and lives that they want or getting new skills so that they may be able to get jobs and things of that nature.
1: You said you've been quoted as saying peace is about character. This is a powerful idea to reflect upon. Our character is a strange mixture of our ingrained identity and our response to circumstances. What do you mean by that?
0: I think that the the choices that we make uh, are what define us Our active choices we make are what define us, uh, define our character, and certain things are ingrained in us or, or have been taught to us at that moment in time with the knowledge that we have. We make those choices that define who we are. Certainly, they don't define all of who you are, because you can change, your thoughts can change. I've seen massive changes in individuals who've wanted to make
1: that happen. If you're a regular listener to the show, then you know by now that while all my guests are steadfast in their commitment to activism, when it comes to adopting the label of activist, well, at that point, things start to get a little murkier. Earlier in the series, I did warn you that you'd need to keep a pen and some paper handy to keep track of their answers. But worry not, in our season finale, I'll do a recap of where we ended up. So... What's Forest Whitaker's take on it all? Do you embrace the label of activist?
0: When I think of activism, uh, I mean, ism is just a cause, it's it's something that you live by, to be active in that cause. And I think that all individuals can choose certain causes to to try to work with, to bring something positive to that situation. And, And in the process of doing that, they are actively working the reinforcement of positive attitudes and issues that are going on in their lives and their community. And that they see them uh, in a localized way, as well as can understand at times the global ramifications of like these changes that happen. But I, I don't really go around and say, I don't think I, I say I'm an activist and there are people who utilize the term activism or activist in the same fashion as someone who's working towards the common good and like, use it as a part of an identity for themselves. It's an identity that's only positive because it's just one that cares about others.
1: Mm. I I actively embrace it and and call myself an an activist, which I think some people, it it might be triggering for some, but I think it's part of being, it's a sense of tapping into a kind of collective identity. And like you said, a community of those who are actively and consistently working for change. You've been working with young people around the world, you know, here in the United States, close by in Mexico, um, who are working to bring about change in their communities. They are activists, at least I would describe them as such, mm-hmm. amongst other things. What did you make of the scenes we saw in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, where we saw young people in this country, focusing here on the US, take to the streets? You've always thought about the potential of young people, and then we saw it here.
0: Yeah, it was really powerful to see the people rise up. And I thought that it was really beautiful to see that uh, people were awakened to and were caring deeply and personally about injustices and prejudices and abuse, systematic abuse. It's that like no other moment that I've, I've seen
1: I thought it was also remarkable because I think you know this better than others. There is generally this narrative around young people today and maybe thinking specifically around millennials, that they're self-indulgent, they're self-involved, and they don't really care about much beyond their own personal circles or personal interests. You would counter that, I'm sure, from the, people, the young people you work with around the world. And I felt that it was a public moment of countering that narrative, that narrow definition Around so many young people, I, mean, I think the
0: new the young generation is really aware of a lot of different things in a way that took us the generation before a lot later in their lives to see and understand. They're willing to take chances. They're willing to step out. They're willing to sacrifice. I know there. Was, remember there was a they were doing this thing in France uh, where these youths like all signed the petition from colleges from the highest colleges in in the country. I think to that they would only work. With people who did certain things for the for the community and the environment, and it became a big kind of statement you know like because if you wanted to work with those type of high end brains, young brains they uh they were going to have to change, and it was discovered that they would be willing these used to work for less money, but know that when they're working, people work and care about causes, and so I think we have a different time people who um taking photographs of all these moments that, that happened and came up before us. Years from now, we'll look at those photographs and see champions of time and a cause. It's, it's a beautiful thing.
1: Mm. Final question. Do you have a mantra? Do you have something that you tell yourself, which you use as your kind of, I guess, maybe North Star to keep you going? I know you meditate. I know you've, you've done some events with the Dalai Lama. What is your self-talk?
0: I guess if this is the last moment you have on Earth, then what are you going to do? What are you going to do?
1: I think that is a a good place to leave it. Something for us all to think about. Forrest Whitaker, such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing.
0: Sure, no problem. Thanks.
1: I went into my conversation with Forrest Whitaker in search of answers to questions I've long had about running a not-for-profit and came away with a renewed appreciation of the importance of being strategic and methodical with every decision you make. I was struck by how he started small with a clear sense of his methodology for bringing about change. Truthfully, that clarity and pacing is something I could have done with at certain points in my own journey. In my case, growing too fast taught me some painful lessons which I'm praying all you new founders can avoid. My hope is that Forrest's wholehearted commitment to WPDI is inspiring to everyone, regardless of whether you're inclined to undertake the task of building an organization. Becoming a founder is not for everyone, nor is it the only way to make a meaningful difference. Far more important is that you are activated by what you see happening around you and committed to whatever your choice of action is, regardless of whether you're young or old. I'm still reflecting on many of the things that Forrest said, and I keep returning to one question above all If this is my last moment on Earth, what am I going to do? Do you know how you'd answer that question? Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sassei on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sassei. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sase. Our producers are Brittany Martinez and Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone, and bye for now.
0: Woke AF Daily is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Get woke with my bevy of special guests from the worlds of news and politics, arts, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and end on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world, filter through the powerful voice of a black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with me, Danielle Moody.